0: Audiences can expect just a great film. We're retelling a fantastic tale with wonderful music and adding to a technology that no one has ever seen before, no one has ever used before, and it's just exquisite. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. The
1: Popcorn Digest. Hello, and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the movies you love and some you don't. I'm your host Gareth Green, and joining me, as always, is my full-time co-host and part-time Disney heroine, Princess Andrew Phillips.
0: Ah, I'm a positive role model.
1: <laughs> and for this week's episode, we're doing things a little differently here at Popcorn Digest, as we're joined by a third guest, friend of the show, Aiden Belazur. Hello, Aiden.
2: <laughs> Sorry, I'm so
1: laughing. I waved Andy's. into nothingness, <laughs> as I did that, like, hello. <laughs>
2: Do you trust me? <laughs> uh, hello. Hi. Hi. everyone. Hello. <laughs> so To the point. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: So Aiden is joining us for the first of our topic-based episodes as we're discussing Disney's live-action remakes because who better to talk about these kids' films than three men in their mid-thirties? So if any episode is going to get us added to some official watch list, it's definitely this one. But before we discuss all things Disney, it's time to roll the clips.
0: Well, well. I shall bestow a gift on the child. Look at her. What if she is the one? <gasps> the one who'll break the spell. Hello. You can talk? Well, of course he can talk. Hello. Pleased to meet you. Oh, great one who summons me, I stand by my oath, loyalty to wishes three. I'm kidding. Watch this. Watch out! Uh. You done wound me up, you ain't never had a friend like me. Life's not fair, is it, my little friend? While some are born to feast,
1: others spend their lives in the dark. Every family must contribute
2: one man to fight. You're a war hero. You've already made many great sacrifices.
1: If you saw Alice in Wonderland, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, The Jungle Book, Aladdin, The Lion King, Dumbo, Mulan and Hercules and thought, I want to see those films, but with none of the charm, heart or talent, then boy, have Disney got something for you. But are the diamonds in the rough of this bankrupt cinematic trend or should we leave Disney to rot in the Shadowlands, picking over the bones of its predecessors? Well, that's what we're here to discuss today. And Andy, you picked this, the first of our topic-based episodes, so please tell us a little bit about why you've decided we can no longer go within 50 yards of a school anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: I think I decided to do these as, in terms of the business of movies, this is, I would say, probably one of the most transparent things I can think of in terms of making films purely for a monetary reason uh, because there is no artistic reason for any of these films to exist. So needless to say, you're quite the fan. Oh, I love them. They're amazing. <laughs> 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 and Aiden, so we're bringing
1: you along for the episode as well because I know having been friends with you for years, you're quite the fan of the original movies as well. I know we bonded because Aladdin was both our favourite movie of that era, of like the Disney renaissance. So how do you feel coming to this topic? What's your experience bringing to the Disney live-action remakes?
2: Kind of like a mild, mild sense of despair. <laughs> um, mixed in with, with questionable wonder. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't know. I just sort of, at one side I see the point from a business point of view, you know, but on the other side of it, it's so similar they're so similar that but without the heart there it just doesn't make sense to me as a, as a fan of the
3: originals
1: yeah. yeah no i think it's a a great topic to discuss as well because we are currently in the midst of this trend it's a trend that isn't going away anytime soon we're going to be talking about in this episode like where this trend really began what we're watching currently and whether or not it actually works are they leaving any cultural impact and we're also going to be discussing the future of Disney and what this means because I do feel like this live action Disney remake epidemic I'm going to call it is something that's really indicative of where Disney is at as a company in terms of the quality that it's releasing the type of film that it's releasing and there's something sad about it to me that I've been wanting to speak about really looking for the avenue to speak about because I'm talking about these films from the perspective of being a father my daughter's currently at the age where she's watching a lot of these films and a lot of the originals as well and I'm starting to see these films once more through her eyes and what these films mean for her and her future so that's really what I want to discuss as well today for an episode but I guess before we do actually get into things it's time to really we normally lay some context in for a film when we're discussing a film but we can't really do that today i'm going to lay some context about the trend and where this trend really began and to be honest you can look as far back and say alice in wonderland is where this began in 2010 but i think you can go further back into the 90s when 101 dalmatians came out the jungle book came out 102 dalmatians that type of thing but it was more of a mid-budget, less successful version of this trend. Like they made an attempt at it. Did any of you watch those those films during the time? Yeah,
3: um, I, I the saw Hundred One Dalmatians. Yeah, it's the Steven Summers Jungle Book from nineteen ninety four, starring Jason Scott Lee. No, I
2: didn't even know.
3: I've not seen yes. that. Yeah. Sam Neill's wow. in it. No, I had no idea. One, yeah, Dal- Dalmatians. I um, I
2: watched and thought it was great.
1: Yeah, I. I... I loved Dalmatians when I was a kid.
3: Yeah, I remember when Dalmatians came out because it was everywhere. Like you could yeah. not get away from it. It was like quite a big deal at the time because uh, aside from The Jungle Book, that was the very first film they directly made like bait because Jungle Book's more of a an adaptation of the book. It's not really a yeah, a straight it's not a, like a remake as such. So, Dalmatians was the first where they actually bothered using elements of the of the original film in its production and Mm -hmm. um, yeah I remember it being everywhere and and being pretty successful and then they made the sequel and that kind of bombed. It did yeah
1: I mean I remember the thing is about the 101 Dalmatians film is is that I think it's quite successful in that that Glenn Close role. That role is now synonymous with Glenn Close. I can't think of anybody else being Cruella DeVille except Glenn Close. I mean I know they're attempting to remake it currently they're doing the Cruella movie or DeVille or whatever it's called with is it Emma Stone? Yeah. Which I can't see in
3: my head. But they've shot it up, as well, haven't they? They've, uh. they've, they've, Have they? It wrapped in like December or something. I was reading just before. So it's done. It's in the can. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the can.
1: I don't know if I want to go see or take my kids to see a film about the makings of a villain that wants to um, skin animals. <laughs> like, like, come on, like kids. It's going to be a wild ride. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's like bringing my kids to the cinema to go watch Cruella before we take them to the abattoir.
2: <laughs> Some people can pull off um, that sort of very theatrical villain and they, it just works. But other people, if they try and replicate a role... Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like Emma Stone couldn't pull it off. The wackiness and the how mental she is and what she actually wants <laughs> to do, which is kill puppies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: like I think that needs to work in that film because when you really strip it down, it is about a villain that wants to skin puppies. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you really have to play into the cartoony aspects of that character, but I don't think I want to see the Cruella movie. That doesn't appeal to me. What's that tagline going to be like,
2: before the puppies, there were the cats. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <You're> the gerbils. <laughs> Why was she still like, sellotaping a, a bird's wings together and throwing it off a roof? Like, it yeah.
1: sounds like a
3: horror film. <laughs> I think the problem they've had, and they've almost—they've not learned by the failure of the sequel, uh, the 102 Dalmatians—that there is only really one story that can be garnered out of that character, yeah. uh, Unless they do something completely different with her, which. To be honest, if you take that element out of the character, there's no character there, so... Why make that film whatsoever if you take that element out? You've basically just got to make 100 more dimensions again for that idea to work, and they've already made... I mean, they're getting to the point now where they're actually remaking the live-action remakes anyway, so it's... Sort yeah. of folding back on itself and that's the future of this trend is cannibalization. It's already
1: at a point where it's already eating its legacy essentially and the future of it if it continues is just to go through the cycle once more. And that's something that I do want to get into later on in the episode. But also as well like we spoke about the Jungle Book that also Aiden is not a film that I saw. I remember it being released, but yeah. what I remember most about it is that like you say it had uh, Jason Scott Lee in it. And I remember Mowgli looked like he was about
2: 29, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs>
1: like this, this hench bodybuilder,
2: like <laughs> dangling from the trees. He would have watched all his wolf friends die because they've got a shorter lifespan. So, <laughs> so all of his family around him would have died. And him not knowing, him, just whimpering and howling. <laughs> um, Andy Circus did um... a Mowgli. His Jungle Book was based on the book. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But the
3: original animated Disney film... It's very loosely based. Mm, Okay. Whereas some of the other ones, yeah, like Mowgli and, and everything are much more, like... Faithful to the books. I know we're going to be discussing the
1: Jungle Book, the Jon Favreau version, in this episode, but I do think that Mowgli, the Andy Serkis version, is definitely primed for an episode as <laughs> well. well. Because have you seen some of the CGI in that film? Yeah. Like, it's not so much the quality of the CGI, but that they've decided to go for this like human-animal hybrid. Almost like in the same way as cats for all of the characters. Like the Christian Bale, does he play the Panther Bagheera? Something like that. And it kind of looks like him as well. And it's
2: like. (laughs) And there's the Cockney. um, Is it the wolves? The, The bad wolf pack in that, in his film? They're all Cockney. If I remember well, maybe I'm just thinking of orcs from Lord of the Rings. Oh, know. right. It's got that, mixed that up. type of feeling to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Meats back on the menu,
1: boys. You know what? The thing is about that scene, the meats back on the menu, boys, scene in Lord of the Rings, is that it implies that the orcs are very much aware of what a restaurant
2: is and yep. that they have their own little <laughs> orc <laughs> takeaways. Potato waffle nut, and a smalling leg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not smalling, halfling Oh man, messed that one up <laughs> The halfling combo box
3: <laughs>
2: oh, Fries and breasts for me <laughs> Bucket full of hobbit breasts Oh my god,
0: that's great <laughs> <laughs>
2: Anyway.
1: (laughs) Okay, so let's leave that conversation behind, this very dark conversation about Hobbit breasts, and let's move on to where this trend really started to kick up a notch in terms of the Disney live-action remakes. So I think I would say that it actually began with Alice in Wonderland, the Tim Burton live-action remake. And that film, despite being something of a critical failure, was a huge success. It was made for $200 million, And it made a billion dollars at the box office back, I would say, at the tail end of when making a billion dollars at the box office really meant something.
3: Mm. It doesn't so much anymore. That's just the standard that you have to stick to now. I think it was greatly helped by the 3D trend at the time, because they rode that crust of the wave. That's right, yeah. Post-Avatar 3D, yeah. I'd say 2010 to 13 were probably the golden years for that. The well, golden, say, the golden oh, yeah. shower of 3D. Yeah, the golden shower,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> was it in IMAX?
1: It was, yeah. It was in IMAX. I didn't actually see it. I caught the last 45 minutes on television a few Christmases ago, and it's one of the most dross-looking Disney films I've ever seen, and in a way seems to have set the template for future Disney live-action remakes. It's just so
2: lifeless and flaccid. Yeah. This is what I think about it, and that is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've seen it, and I, honestly, I can't remember yeah. almost all of it. I do remember his makeup was just ve- his eyes, whatever the contact lens they had on Johnny Depp's eyes. I think that was cocaine. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Just a drop of LSD. (laughs) Let's get them pupils nice and big and deep. (laughs) I can't remember much else about it. Was there a smoking caterpillar in it? Yeah. Still, there must have been. Yeah,
3: that's in the original. Alan Rickman.
2: Yeah, that's right, yeah. What, Alan Rickman
1: was in the Johnny Depp version? No, he was smoking a caterpillar.
2: (laughs) 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 Guys, come on. Don't fuck with me on this one.
3: (laughs) Yeah, he plays the caterpillar in it. And unfortunately, in the sequel, that role is his final ever film role. Is it? Oh, dear God, no. Oh, that's really sad. Where well, he plays a fucking butterfly.
1: Oh, that's that's yeah. really quite sad. What a what a way to end a legacy. Mm. Fucking Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> yeah, so that's Alice in Wonderland. That's where it all really kicked off. And then from that as well, I have a list of films that followed. And with that film making the money that it did, as mentioned, $200 million budget and made a billion dollars worldwide. Off the back of that, we went into films like Maleficent, Cinderella, then The Jungle Book really took it the next notch again. We had Beauty and the Beast, Dumbo, Aladdin, Lion King, and the Maleficent sequel. Now, I will say that we've got to the point now where last year, 2019, that culminated in three of these releases, three of these live-action Disney movies. Like That's all they were making. I know they've got the whole Marvel thing and Lucasfilm, but as a Disney, as a production company, all they're making live-action-wise is Dumbo, Aladdin, Lion King, and the Maleficent sequel. That is really essentially where their business is currently and it's five if you count the lady in the tramp from disney plus exactly yeah which is a film i have actually seen i watched it not too long ago yeah so have i yeah so (laughs) so that's really like sets us up to where we are currently and i want to start the episode off on a positive note i'm going to throw a question out are there any of the disney live action remakes that you like or what are the positive aspects... I can see you laughing already, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> and what are the positive aspects that you can
3: take away from these movies? If any. I liked Luke Evans as Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, he's actually surprisingly great in that film. I mean, to be honest, I thought the pairing of him and Josh Gabb were probably the only successful things in that film. And Will Smith as the genie in Aladdin was okay i agree i wouldn't say it was great but it was okay it was better than i was expecting and he's the only sort of saving grace of that film on that robin williams is my
2: if not one of he's my favorite actor of all time personally yeah and that role is just he brings so much to me to the original role from all the celebrity impressions to just the energy and the way he manipulates his voice and he's just incredible to me will smith having to follow that at the hats off because that is a that's one of robin williams most famous roles yeah it's an impossible task yeah absolutely and i thought will smith did a brilliant job not necessarily just being the genie but a brilliant job in having to follow up on something spectacular yeah. so i i agree with you on that i think he he was the best part of the film of aladdin and still not great but definitely i think he did a good job because i'm sure if so many people were watching that film to watch that performance
1: yeah and to be honest, a lot of people had their knives sharpened for that particular role as well. And who can blame them? Because as you mentioned, Robin Williams, especially for our generation, we grew up with him as a filmmaker. I've already spoke about him on a previous episode, Toys. That was more in a negative way. But these films like Fern Gully and Aladdin and, well, I mean, you look at the films he made as well, even like Jumanji and Hook. They may not be the most successful films quality-wise, but these are the films that we grew up with. And Robin Williams made those films. And I couldn't imagine anybody else in the role of the genie that works because of Robin Williams. And it seems to have been tailor made to Robin Williams' stand up performance anyway, like they'd tried to embody that in the character from the very beginning. And everybody had the knife sharpened for Will Smith. And I would say that actually, he filled the shoes quite well. But more so, when he was allowed to be Will Smith, yeah, yeah, rather than yeah, definitely, Robin Williams, like there are moments where they keep on bringing it back to that original performance because we're expecting it to hit similar beats, but when they're allowed Will Smith to be Will Smith and be kind of like charming and affable in the way that he is, that character comes to life in a way that it like i didn't have it pegged to. I I wasn't sure that was going to happen. I actually walked away from that film saying that Will Smith was one of the best aspects of it, and I didn't think that was going to work from the outset. Yeah. Not to say that I think that it's a great performance, not to say that it is even his best performance. No, no. But just in terms of living up to something... He successfully made me forget the Robin Williams character a couple of times throughout that film, and that
3: in itself is a success. Yeah, I think uh, from a technical aspect as well, I thought it worked the best when he was just in his human form. I think any time they tried the um, the weird mocap CG blue version of Will Smith the the limitations yeah but his floaty face on yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger's avatar body yeah <laughs> I think the limitations of the remakes are very apparent there and then in terms of the strivings to make something live action it's for some weird reason a an ambition to be legitimate with these films for some bizarre reason and you get yeah. the same thing with comic book movies because I still think that Into the Spider-Verse is probably one of the best comic book movies that's ever been made hands down yeah and I think that's down yeah, to the fact same. that it's animated and uses the format well and the format translates the the form of the comic much better than a live-action movie ever could but there's still this kind of belief that it's not a proper spider-man movie because it's not a live-action movie mm-hmm. it's just a spin-off you know it's that thing in the background and spider-man far from home is the real spider-man movie because it's in the MCU and everything so There's still always that kind of stigma attached to Mm -hmm. films that aren't made in live action. But I think these films prove the other way around that in a lot of cases, live action can be very inferior to uh, other forms when it comes to telling certain stories. Yeah, and incredibly restrictive, I would say, as well. When you start to compare
1: what they're doing with the live action films to what they did with the animated films. And I always subscribe to the Brad Bird way of thinking, and that is that animation is not a genre animation as a medium yeah there are many genres within that but it's people treat it like it's a genre all of its own
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and as you mentioned there's a stigma that is brought to it as a result of that that really shouldn't exist it's just a way of telling these stories and some things absolutely excel in that medium yeah i would actually say as well i want to talking about the positive aspects of these live-action remakes one of them that i did watch most of in the build-up to this episode was maleficent and i don't like it i don't like the film it's not for me i like the character maleficent in sleeping beauty i think it's one of the best designed characters in terms of the disney villains and i would say that that film probably robs her of her villainy in many ways but also on the other side of things I feel like from the perspective I'm at with the Disney live action films we're getting now, that I still want to applaud it for trying to do something completely different with an established character. It actually sticks out as a film that tries in a trend that is known for not trying. And in a way, I want to like applaud Maleficent for that, even though it's not a film that works for me. I know it works for many other people, but it doesn't work for me. And I would say that in terms of the remakes, there's one film in the lot that I think actually does work perfectly. And it's not really strictly a live-action remake, but it's a a remake of a film that was only partially animated. And that is Pete's Dragon. Did anybody see that?
3: No, I don't think anyone saw Pete's Dragon, to be honest.
1: Well, exactly. (laughs) So it's a David Lowry directed film. So he's known for like the indie darling for The Old Man and the Gun and Ghost Story as well. And he did this Pete's Dragon live-action remake for $65 million. So it's really a low budget when compared to these other $200 million plus budgeted films. And I think that low budget really allowed him the freedom to do something different with existing material. And it allowed him to really cut out a lot of the chaff that in a larger budgeted film he would have had to include. Because it was like nostalgic. Even if it didn't work because it was based on that nostalgia that we bring to these films. He would have been forced into bringing that along, because I think Pete's Dragon is a film that I grew up with it, but I don't think it works. I think it's it has its moments, but it's very, very up and down all the way through. It's very uneven. Doesn't that
2: nostalgia almost work against a lot of these live-action remakes, especially for those of us who are older and grew up with and have a very strong fondness of the original ones? It can heavily, heavily taint our viewership, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely, yeah.
1: I feel like it's a double-edged sword when it comes to nostalgia as well, is that you've got these studio heads that are telling the directors and the writers that they have to make these films, that they have to hit these beats as well because this is what the audience expects. But from our perspective, it's like experiencing something that we've already been through. It's a poor imitation. And I always think at the end of it, like, why would I ever watch that film again when I have the original there if it's just going to be hitting the same nostalgic beats? But yeah. at the same time, nostalgia is king in cinema at the moment. It's, there's no escaping it. For the last, I would say, 10, maybe 15 years, we've just been building to this nostalgic peak that I think the bottom's got to fall
2: out of sooner or later, really. Yeah. A positive aspect for me, especially with the Lion King. And I don't think anyone can argue this. If if you argue this, then you then you're blind. And that's the visuals. The visuals are stunning to me. Yeah. Now, the fact that they can't express themselves <laughs> is a big failure for me, but yeah. if they were making a, something live action where a lion doesn't need to smile. Mm. <laughs> a lion can be a lion. For example, I mean, there's a shot at the beginning of of it where it's like a little bush rat or a little mouse thing. Mm-hmm. It's like running along and it's, I was just, I watched it a few times. And I was like, just look at the way its ears are flicking and it's smelling and an ear flicks and moves this way and its tail. It's just incredible. It is yeah. incredible what they've managed to do with that. That's certainly one of the positives of these films, especially making these animals
3: live action.
2: But maybe it's too good and maybe that, that almost brings it back around to a negative point.
3: Yeah, I, mean, I think with that, I really appreciate the technology that's gone into the figures, and I would emphasize the figures rather than the backgrounds because the backgrounds are live action. But I just wish all that energy and money had been used on something new rather than something yeah. where it was never going to be suited to that format because that, The Lion King, that aside, probably one of the worst films I've ever seen in my entire life. I thought it was absolutely abysmal. I actually had to turn it off halfway through. Oh, wow. It was aggressively dull and boring. Yeah, I mean, how could they do that to kimber the white lion? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I just got the sense that outside of the animators who were doing the creatures, no one was trying. Whoever filmed it was lazy as fuck. The shot compositions is, despite it looking pristine, is pretty terrible. The voice acting's very questionable. The pacing's just gone and the staging for any of the musical numbers is non-existent like yeah. I just can't wait to be king it's absolutely shocking even when you take out these sort of abstract visuals from the original the actual general staging and editing in those musical numbers is non-existent Yeah, it's like everyone's on autopilot
1: I would say as well like on your point to kind of meet both points here is that one of the things that I came out of The Lion King saying when I went to go see it I took uh, my daughter to go see it and to be honest she wasn't that interested in the film She's watched the original so many times, but she wasn't that interested in this version of the film. And she didn't get upset in the parts that I thought she would get upset, in the parts that upset her at home watching the original. It was just kind of an experience that she went through and then never really revisited it again. But I would say that it's a technical exercise more than it is a movie. And technically, in terms of the visual effects and the believability of the way that these creatures look, and as you mentioned, like the close-ups of the fauna the close-ups of the little critters the little animals and the lions themselves it's unquestionably amazing it's unquestionably brilliant and I agree with you Andy that I just kind of wish that all of that energy had just been channeled into a brand new experience for everybody because and I think this is a problem with these type of films is that when somebody asks now or especially when my daughter asks dad will you put on the Lion King I know instinctually, that she's not referring to the live-action remake. And that's the kind of issue with these, is that when people ask to put on Aladdin, when people ask to put on The Lion King, nobody's ever going to be talking about these remakes. No. Mm. They just exist. They're a technical exercise. They're kind of like a retread, but they're leaving no real cultural impact, I would say.
2: I feel they've almost gone down um, kind of like a DreamWorks path in a way. Perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but Pixar always seemed to me that they got the best voice for the role. And DreamWorks always seemed to get the biggest name for the role, whether or not they were the best voice for the role, right? And I remember watching the trailer for the Lion King, the remake, and at the end it does a Dum, 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 da, da, da. and on every beat it's another big name actor and I think it's two full screens worth of named actors. Yeah. Is that just to make sales better? Is that, is that yeah. what they're taking that from the DreamWorks model yeah. for? I mean they own Pixar as well right? Why would they not just take notes from those critically acclaimed films that Pixar are creating? Yeah it's
1: regressive isn't it really? It's like they're going back to doing something that the competitor was known for doing and was often criticized for you know what i'd never made that parallel that it's more like dreamworks now but it it, not good dreamworks (laughs) very bad dreamworks this is like shrek uh,
3: the third shrek four (laughs) (laughs) i think this is down to the fact that these are handled by the live action section of disney studios whereas the umbrella of walt disney animation pixar and blue sky now are their own thing and they are yeah. managed by a, a whole separate bunch of people. Like I think at the moment it's like Jennifer Lee, mm-hmm. Clark, Spence, something like that, and um, Pete Doctor. So they oversee the animation, which, to be honest, I would say is probably the only department that's actually taking any risks these days in Disney. Because yeah. they're actually making original films still. I had a point on, um, guys, you were saying about your daughter watching maybe some of these live-action
2: remakes yeah. for the first time, perhaps, over the original animation. Just randomly, well, you both know this, but for the listeners, I guess, one of my favourite films of all time is um, Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. And I've never seen the original version of that film. I know it's a musical, and I love the musical, and I've seen it many times live, with a very, very drastic and different ending, let me tell you that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I've never seen the original film version, the one from the 60s or something? Yeah, the Roger Corman version. Yeah. I've seen it. Okay, well, I've never seen that, but I've seen over a hundred times because I used yeah. to watch it at my dad's house yeah. when I visited him on weekends. And that film, that's the first time I saw that. So I had no reference to the original, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. And I love that film. Yeah, I really do love it. So I imagine that there's going to be people like me with regards to these live-action remakes, right, who have no reference of what's come before, but they do now build a strong connection to this film, having seen it for the first time. And then those people, like like if I watched the original Little Shop of Horrors, yeah. would that taint something that I've fallen in love with now? Do you get what I mean? It's an interesting yeah, way to think about it.
1: I understand, but having seen the original Little Shop of Horrors as well, I would say that the thing about remaking that and doing it in, as a musical is that the musical version of Little Shop of Horrors improves on the original in every way possible. The original film is one that was oh. shot in about three days. Yeah. <laughs> oh right (laughs) it's shot in a very limited window like I, i remember finding out that it was shot in over a week on weekdays and that was it really i would say that the musical improves on that in every single way and if i would say that if you are going to do remakes of films you need to pick a film that one needs to be improved and you also need to be doing it in a completely different way as well like to justify its existence and Little Shop of Horrors, the version you're referring to, the musical, is exactly the type of remake
3: that we should be making if we are making remakes at all. Yeah. Ah. They just took something that had a kernel of a good idea, but the actual film was not particularly great, and made something out of it. I mean, probably another great example of a remake like that that works is The Fly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where, obviously, the original execution of it Mm. is very kooky. With the like flyman. And then obviously, David Cronenberg yeah. was able to make a uh, supremely terrifying body horror with lots <laughs> yeah. of different themes and, and all <laughs> sorts of subtext going on. One that includes Jeff
1: Goldblum's dick in a jar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Nobody That's asked him
3: bus. to. <laughs> he just brought it to set and just yeah. said, just, yeah. <laughs> It's my dick in a jar. <laughs> my dick in a jar, girl. <laughs> But I think that's where the comparison that you can maybe turn it on its head because that is where they've taken something and and made it much better. Whereas this, they've taken things which are very iconic things and made very often mediocre products out of it. And going back to your daughter like Gaz, when she wants to watch The Lion King, she's going to immediately say the animated version because yeah. there's nothing to latch onto on that remake. I mean, I was just thinking from a marketing point of view, there's nothing to garner out of that because of the way that they've done it. Mm-hmm. You cannot market photorealistic lions because you're just selling lions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't market Simba in the 2019 version because you're just selling a plush toy of a, like a, just a lion. Yeah. You know, you can't market anything. This is Simba. He's so unique looking. He doesn't look like any other lion. (laughs) And that's the thing that these films have an incredibly limited shelf life because I know for a fact, even though the movie made like $1.6 billion, the soundtrack didn't sell. Yeah. Everyone just bought the old one. That was a massive disappointment as well for me,
1: was the soundtrack. I know that they were bringing Hans Zimmer back, but it felt like the retooling of his own work was far inferior as well. Some of the best cues were just... I don't know if it was Mm. to do with the mixing, but some of the bits I was waiting to listen for were like mixed lower in a
2: track that included more noisy elements as well. and It just kind of lost me. Another problem with that is that sort of harking back to the point I made earlier is that when they sing um, Can You Feel The Love Tonight I didn't hear Nala I heard Beyonce
0: yeah, yeah. you know
2: and all that <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: obviously she's way better than that
1: yeah. but, um, but say, is that Beyonce hit. on the podcast? <laughs> special guest Beyonce
2: <laughs> <laughs> or, or is it Nala? yeah, yeah oh fuck
1: <laughs> Hello. <laughs> that was my impression of a lion. Wow! Yep. Thank you.
3: No, <laughs> it's not like Mongo from Blazing Saddles. I know that Elton John does not like the new version Elton. of the movie I, The at way all. that you said Elton <laughs> first name terms. <laughs> oh yeah, my mate Elton. <laughs> Me and EJ, he's
2: got some thoughts on it.
1: Did anybody hear that coronavirus Elton John live? Oh
2: no! I'm still standing.
1: Oh, dude. I'm still standing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> nope, man. It's, Look at it straight away. It's
1: absolutely brilliant, mate. You need to see the version where somebody's added lyrics as to what he's actually saying. <laughs> Back up on the piss end of my life.
2: Yeah, it's like he forgot to put his teeth in before doing the show. It's like, yeah. yeah. That can just sort of boil up the anger inside a little bit as well, you know. Because like I was watching um, Hakuna Matata. Yeah. Well I watched the whole film. And when Hakuna Matata came on, there's just this one bit that the original singer does, and he harmonizes with one particular note, and I always just love that. I just I just love that. I used to love singing it and listening to it. Oh, it's where right. he goes. Hakuna, Hakuna, ha ha ha. Do you like know that? who that yeah. is?
3: Who is it? The guy who did the singing voice of Simba in the original is Joseph Williams. Now, he was the lead singer of Toto in the late 80s, but he's also the son of John Williams.
2: Oh, really? What? Yeah. No way.
3: Yeah.
2: Oh, wow. Oh, well, wow. Well, he does this brilliant part where he does that sort of trill and that laugh, mm-hmm. and it's just, I don't know, it's just fantastic. And although I didn't think Donald Glover did a bad rendition, it was a different rendition, but it just missed that one bit for me. And it sounds almost borderline pedantic, really, but just it was enough to affect it for me. Yeah. But that's the film on that level as
1: well, watching it, and especially because you have that frame of reference in mind constantly throughout. It's like watching a amateur production of a play. Yeah. And, I mean, not to say I think there are some absolutely fantastic amateur productions as well out there, but it's like a vision of it that something's always off. There's always something taking you out. I think the inherent realism of it is always taking you out as well. Like, it really culminates with that can you feel the love tonight as well. Because by the end of that song... It's like, when you see Can You Feel the Love Tonight in the original, you're like, yes, yes, I can feel the love. There's a lot of love right here. There's a lot of, look at this. Look at look at what's happening on screen. There's so much color. There's so much energy. And in this one, it's like, can you feel the love? By the end of the song, I'm like, I want to die. Yeah, <laughs> I am so insanely bored. I am experiencing a, an existential crisis watching this, especially because
2: it's in the fucking daytime. Yeah. Can you feel the love tonight? <laughs> The photorealism, I was half expecting Simba's lipstick to pop out. (laughs) 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 Just, I mean, how real do they want to go?
3: Full-on adult version. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing I really wanted to touch on with all of these films, and especially the ones based on the Renaissance films, I just find it incredibly disrespectful to every single human being that worked on those original films and made them what they were, because... The blood, sweat and tears to get something like The Lion King as it was in the original is um, unprecedented. And using that Can You Feel The Love Tonight as an example, in the original reel of the film, that song is sung entirely by Timon and Pumbaa. And they wanted to do it almost like an ironic love song. And it got to the point where they did a screening and Elton John was there. And he actually was seething. He was like, you've ruined the movie by doing this. And they had to wow. sort of quickly scramble and change it. And obviously they reached a compromise by having Tamen and Pumbu sing the start of the song. I know Aladdin, halfway through production, they had to throw out the whole story and start again. Yeah. Because it wasn't working. Like There's a whole thing with that Howard Ashman wrote, which had... Um, Aladdin is part of a street gang, and his mother was a main character, and they cut all that out, and they actually had to throw out half of Howard Ashman's songs, which is why Tim Rice was brought in to sort of finish it because Howard had already passed away by the time they got to retooling the film. Right. Yeah. I listened to
2: the song about his mother. I think it's on one of the um, extras on the DVD on the um, Blu-ray.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful track. Yeah, but they had to ditch it because the rest of the film wasn't working as a whole, and that's the mm-hmm. kind of blood, sweat, and tears. These films are really hard to make and also the fact that at the time they had to make the films very short because of the uh, time-consuming work that was put into them so you have to have narrative shorthand. Every single word counts, every single visual counts and I feel the the level of disrespect by these lazy fucking directors. It's if you've written a really good essay, and then somebody nicks it and then decides, I'm going to do the same thing, but all I'm going to do is just change the words, but the words aren't as good. Yeah, it's like going through a thesaurus for every single word, and because they've changed every word, it no longer makes sense. Yeah, Like, for example, on The Lion King, I did watch bits of it afterwards, but like the end credits, on the crawl, it just says, thanks to the original creators of The Lion King, Roger Ellis, Rob Menkoff, and Brenda Chapman. It's like a tiny little reference to the original film and everyone else involved.
1: I would say as well, like to go to another film as well, like what they did with Aladdin. I know that there's a massive controversy with the writer of that film. It was Ted Elliott, I think I was reading online. I was saying that when the trailer was released, it included dialogue that he had written, the information about, you know, the diamond and the rough and all of that. and, And even a melody that he had wrote as well. And they didn't get any money for it. They didn't even get a reach out from Disney to ask them for permission to use their material or anything like that. But he said, it's not that we expected that because it doesn't belong to us. But we expected a representative to at least approach us and say, we're going to remake Aladdin. And we want to make you aware of that, given that you were crucial to that original film. And they didn't get invited to even the premiere of the film. And it's like, that's the way you're treating essentially the source material is that you're essentially just brushing it under the carpet as
2: well? That's horrible, man. Yeah. I mean, they probably give like X amount of free tickets out, or each actor has X amount to give to their friends and stuff like that, and yeah. competition winners and stuff, and they can't even honour the people who created the original, and the only reason that film's there is yeah. because of those people. Will Smith could have brought his fucking dog. You know, in the future, and this is gonna kill you, but there'll be someone who's like, who watches the animated version of Aladdin. And they're like, oh, yeah, it was all right. But I prefer the one where the genie wraps. And like, we're going (laughs) to die on the inside that day. And that is going to happen. (laughs) Talking about Aladdin as well, because I would say
1: that of the original films, Aladdin was the film that I always responded to the most. I don't have as strong as or as visceral as a reaction as you do, Andy, to the Lion King remake, because I was never the biggest fan of The Lion King to begin with. It was Aladdin. That was the film Mm -hmm. that I was always fond of when I was a kid. And the remake was one that I had my knives sharpened for. And when it came out and it was released I was just like, yeah, it it was fine. It was fine. It did what it did and then it's over. It had that kind of effect on me. And I think the more that I've seen it now, because my daughter's watched it a couple of times as well, I'd say the more that it's grated against me now, how little energy and Like, it's a very colourful film. I like that it's got colour in it, but it feels like, especially for a Guy Ritchie film, I quite like Guy Ritchie films. They're okay. He makes very silly dad movies. And even his worst films have, like, Revolver, have this kind of, like, wild, unpredictable energy to the filmmaking. And it's like, I like that about him. And this film has none of that. Aladdin has zero of that. I don't know why you would get Guy Ritchie and then just kind of, like, chop his balls off (laughs) yeah exactly he's clearly not a guy as well that's comfortable with musical numbers because the musical numbers are so slow in terms of the blocking and the movement of the characters Mm. like he's they're supposed to be like jumping over the rooftops as they're singing and stuff like that but because they've got all of this uh song to deliver like say for example they're walking from one side of a courtyard to the other rather than doing it while they're running because they know that they've only got this little space to deliver all of this dialogue in they've got to move much slower. So
2: everybody's moving much slower around them and it makes everything feel sluggish. I'm kind of lying between you two in, in the way that um, my two favourites were both, and equally, The Lion King and Aladdin. I actually thought in Aladdin, Aladdin himself was weak. He was the yeah. weakest character. And I actually yeah. thought Jasmine was, was bumped up a little bit. She had more to say and she had a little bit more to her than in the animated
3: film. I would say they actually made Aladdin quite a lot stupider in the remake. Like, he's kind of a dumb idiot. In, uh, in the remake, it's kind of like a very bad example of PC filmmaking where they they build up the part. The thing I have a problem with, when they make strong female characters or strong ethnic characters, they never give them any flaws. So they're not actually that strong as a character. They're just empowered. But they're not no. actually very interesting. Yeah, They're almost, yeah. like, scared of giving them any flaws because they're scared of, like, any kind of backlash that people might have it's like the movie felt like it was in a vice a lot of the time
1: it's what you would refer to as like marketable progression it's like because i I believe that you know films have to be progressive they have to move forward we have to include more minorities in our films we have to include more roles and more interesting roles for women but this is like performative i think somebody referred to it as performative wokeism and that's what it feels like to me it's like how can we do this in a way that we can market as progressive without actually strictly being so yeah it's like it's how can we have the appearance of taking the next step without actually doing so and that's what these films embody for me it's like how can we use this in a way to just market it to kids
3: as well because i never thought it was more prominent than in the characterization of jafar and the sultan because they were both boring as fuck jafar was a complete (sighs) non-entity in the film if you think the Sultan and Aladdin, I mean, even though he's basically a, sort of a man baby in the uh, animated version, you instantly remember <laughs> he totally <is>. like <laughs> how the Sultan looks like and how he moves and everything. And the same goes for Jafar. But with this film, they've gone so far in the other direction that I mean, to be honest, I would say, with the exception of Luke Evans as Gaston, I just thought all the villains in these remakes were done the dirty. Like Shweta Iyengar as Scar in Lion King was absolute bollocks. Oh, be prepared. I was so disappointed. But they pitched his voice far too similarly to James Earl Jones. And because they didn't look that dissimilar to each other, I was starting to get confused as to who was talking. Because there was very little distinction between the two voices. And also, the other thing I was thinking of, that the animated films did really well and they could sort of get away with it, on the odd occasion, what they would do is, if they liked someone who had a good voice for the speaking part, but then they didn't feel that the, the actor could perform the songs well. What they would do, they would get another person in to actually sing the songs in the similar style. So, for example, in the mm. original Lion King, Be Prepared is only half performed by Jeremy Irons. The bits where he's singing are actually performed by Jim Cummings doing an impression of jeremy irons man jim cummings gets everywhere doesn't he oh yeah so he like does yeah, <laughs> a like...
1: disney
0: mainstay
3: <laughs> just
1: in terms yeah. of voice acting in general i um uh, i forgot what i was watching the other day and i instantly heard his
3: voice and i was like that's jim cummings right there yeah and they seem to have not done that with any of these remakes they've just got actors in who are well known like seth rogan singing hakuna matata is fucking atrocious oh yeah i mean he cannot sing no he cannot sing <laughs> he can laugh though man his, his laugh's great <laughs> he sounds fat so he works for pumba yeah Yeah. but i think that's where they've missed the point of how they created these original films because Mm. especially in the the early period of renaissance when they were making these broadway style musicals when they were casting these films so like little mermaid beating the beast to a lesser extent aladdin and, and lion king but especially those first three they cast them as broadway musicals yeah so If I named the actors who played all these iconic Disney animated characters, like, for example, if I mentioned that Richard White played Gaston, you'd be like, who the fuck's Richard White? And, uh, you know, Paige O'Hara played Belle. I remember watching the DVD extras of my um, old Aladdin
2: DVD. They had a bit where the singers were coming in to perform a whole new world. Yeah. And they were different, I guess, to the actor and the actresses who played um, the speaking roles, like you said. And um, it was some guy, some like short guy who came in wearing like a baseball cap and a hoodie. And then he opens his mouth, and what I remember, that beautiful voice pops out. And I'm looking at him thinking, wow, (laughs) like, like, just where did that come from? Yeah. I was crushed. I was like, you sound so beautiful and i I mean i'm straight but i was like he sounds so beautiful but looks like he's just walked off the street and been like yeah i can sing for a fiver mate let me have a bash (laughs) i was so shocked that this beautiful noise came out of this street (laughs) rat yeah (laughs) street (laughs) rat talking about singing um be prepared it's half singing half speak fuck off just just sing it or yeah. Here. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of the worst parts of that film for me because it's just so anticlimactic and I was waiting for this good, strong performance and the hyenas to be the militant sort of marching that they do all in unison and just... Again, maybe I'm just comparing it too much, but that yeah. song yeah. just wasn't a song, it was a speech... With added
1: fuck. (laughs) But that's it. It's because they've gone down the whole realism aspect that they can't have these like over-the-top figurative symbolic scenes where you have hyenas like Nazis (laughs) goose-stepping down the fucking canyon. And it's like you can't include that because they've dedicated themselves to this kind of planet Earth-type realism. And it ends up cutting the balls off the
3: film anyway. Ends up Uh cutting out what I enjoyed about it to begin with. Yeah. But going back to the casting... Like, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, they are Broadway musicals done in animated form. Therefore, I want a Broadway-quality cast to yeah. bring that off. I do not want to see Emma Watson struggle to sing Belle. Yeah, sounds like cats all over again. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yeah, it's got that feeling to it, hasn't it? And it's like, I don't care if they're famous. I just want them to sing the fucking song well. Like It's a musical. If they can't sing, then it doesn't work. There was another issue that I had um, going off singing that I had with Aladdin, and
2: somebody pointed it out to me, and then once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Like, when he's running around uh, Agrabah, and it's animated, and he looks dirty, and he skids, and dust flies up, and it looks dusty. Yeah, yeah. And then when you watch the film, the live-action film, just look at their clothes, and look at the set. It's pristine. It's, like, clean... And yeah. it doesn't look lived in and he might have a patch on his pants or something like that, but it's so studio. Like that yeah. attention to sort of detail there hasn't happened when there's somebody dedicated to it, whereas an animator would have to almost think for themselves to make something like that to settle them into that world that they've created out yeah. of yeah. the pen.
1: No, I agree. I think there's a complete I mean, not to say, speaking about these films anyway, that. Realism is the way forward But I also think that there's a lack of texture To the imagery that we definitely see In Aladdin as well but yeah, like you say, I think that film as well, it does feel very soundstage from the beginning and I know that there's a huge controversy surrounding that film in regards to the actors that they cast for extras because it was shot in England and they wanted it to be authentically cast in terms of, like, Indian actors portraying Indian roles and all the more power to them. That's a fantastic idea. That is exactly how they should be going forward. But then they absolutely shoot themselves in the foot by casting white people as extras and then bronzing them up giving them a bit of blackface. Mm -hmm. And I watched the film just the other day. I watched the first hour of it. I I will say I watched about, for this episode, I only watched like the first hour of about four different films. I never saw it all the way through. And Aladdin was one of them. And during that opening set piece, if you look hard enough at the extras, you can see the ones that have been bronzed up. You can see the ones that are wearing the Indian blackface and brownface. And it's clear as day.
2: Once you start to notice it, Well, at least they didn't cast Jake Gyllenhaal as the Prince of Persia. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... That would have been a hard one to brown up. Yeah.
1: No, but it's okay, because he has an English accent.
3: (sighs) <sighs> the musical numbers emphasise it more but the differences in the mediums really speak out because, like for example, if you watch One Jump in the original film it's choreographed with an inch of its life the camera's moving, yeah. the shots are just going like that the backgrounds are changing, everything's moving so fast because those films are boarded They're edited in pre-production Yeah, they are They do not proceed with any animation before the story reel is signed off and when they look at these films, they are just looking at hundreds and hundreds of storyboards, and the film is just gets reboarded and reboarded until that everyone's happy. And then they start with the animation mm-hmm. because it's been boarded like that. Every single second counts because you can't waste much with animation because it takes such a fucking long time to do that. If someone's been assigned a shot, they know that that is going in the film because. Yeah. There's nothing on the cutting room floor other than the boarded reels. And that's why the films zip along Mm -hmm. so efficiently in the ways that the live-action films can only dream of because they've not spent anywhere near the same amount of time on them.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of that story about Michael Eisner with the Black Cauldron, or was it Jeffrey Katzenberg? Jeffrey Katzenberg, yeah. He saw that film and said, right, you've got to edit 20 minutes out of it. And the animation crew went, what do you mean edit 20 minutes out of it? The editing's done. We are animating the film now. This is it. The film that you're watching is it. He's like, no, you've got to find a way to edit 20 minutes out of this film. And that film suffers as well because you can obviously see that there are whole chunks just simply taken out wholesale. And it does remind me of this idea of people that don't really know the medium bringing this different mentality to it. Like, as you say, it's people that are so used to dealing with live action that are now imposing that on another medium entirely and with these live action remakes you're getting i get a feeling of that as well like it's somebody that doesn't really understand that original medium coming in and saying well here's us cutting 20 minutes out or adding
3: 20 minutes on as if it's going to improve the piece yeah i did a bit of research on this because i did find the remakes unnecessarily long and i don't know why they're long because even on a business mind if you'd made a 90 minute film you have more screenings in a day yeah So I don't understand why these films are like two hours. So I did some research and looked into how long the original version of the film was. And this is without credits versus the remake. So I did it on the three that I watched because I've just watched the three Renaissance remakes. So the original Lion King tells its story in 83 and a half minutes. And that's without credits. So that's just the actual animation. The 2019 Lion King tells its story in 107 and a half minutes. Yeah, so it's right. like, oh well. And I don't include credits because the credits for The Lion King are about 10 minutes long. Yeah. The original Aladdin tells its story in 86 minutes. 2019 Aladdin tells its story in 119 and a half minutes. <laughs> wow. I didn't think there was that much added. Yeah. Uh, original Beauty and the Beast tells its story in 80 and a half minutes. And the 2017 Beauty and the Beast tells its story in 118 and a half minutes. Yeah. And they're essentially the same story. I mean... With all those three films, there are very few added scenes. I think The Lion King is probably the worst defender for that because I don't think there are pretty much any added scenes in the film. No. It just takes twice as long to tell every single fucking scene. So when they got to I just can't wait to be king, I'm like, fucking hell, this has been going on forever. It's just so slow. Did they not add in Morning Report? No, because... um, No, they didn't, did they? And that's going off the theatricals because I know like in the late 90s, early 2000s, they started doing these special editions where they kept putting in songs, which again was a problem because they cut those songs out for a good reason. Like yeah. in, the Be- in The Beast, there's that Human Again song, which they'd written and recorded for the film and rightly cut it out because it doesn't take the story forward. All it's saying is that the uh, household objects are just wishing that they were fucking human again, but it lasts five minutes. <laughs> and um, that's a great example of them cutting something because it doesn't serve the story in an efficient yeah. way. So there's elements like that when you can see how these things are put together and how actually a lot of the time less is more. And the remakes are so excessive in the way that they tell their story that it inherently weakens things. And also the main thing I had a problem with is, in the Aladdin one especially, them swapping story elements around that actually create more problems than they solve. The fact that they introduced Jasmine so early on in the film to the point where they kind of know that one's not a prince and one's not a peasant that they have to actually magically make everyone think that Aladdin is Prince Ali when that is not an issue in the original version of the film, so they have to create things to solve issues that they've created yeah. by moving things around in the story. I think Beauty and the Beast has the similar issue with the whole um, issue with the household objects being turned permanently into the objects when the rose dies at the end. And they have that horribly depressing ending in the live-action one where all the... Um, household objects basically die I wrote in my notes (laughs) everybody dies at the end of the film (laughs) and it makes the story not work because there's that um, great Lindsay Ellis documentary the, the thanks I hate it yeah where she goes heavily into the beating the beast and all the changes that they made actually make the story worse yeah and
1: she said as well, like, one of the things that she mentions is it's also appease, like, the cinema-sims yeah. culture that we are in now. Like, we've got to have these scenes because somebody's counter somewhere on some YouTube video is going to ding, which is just the wrong reason to include those story beats because you're just going to end up creating more problems for yourself. Because it kind of posits an idea where the local village has actually been under a spell this whole time also because the staff of the house that have been turned into household objects... Are actually relatives of the people of the village, but they can't remember for some reason. And then at the end, as well, they all get turned back, but it's so many years later. Like, isn't there any massive
2: age differences between these people now? <laughs> Perhaps yeah, they're yeah. Just trying to turn up that classic
3: Disney mild peril to eleven. Oh. <laughs> but they keep inventing the, all these bullshit fixes that actually make everything worse. In the original Beat in the Beast, I just thought, oh, there's some sort of, like, everyone's frozen in time thing. It doesn't really have to be explained. It doesn't really matter. No. The big problem that in the live-action remake is that when he, the Beast lets Belle go, that is a fucking awful thing to do because he's condemning. Like, he even says it, I'm sorry I couldn't do the same for you. And it's like, you've condemned all your hundred <laughs> staff members to death. Because yeah. you've let this girl go. And it also creates a really creepy vibe with the household objects, because I know when Belle tries to escape in the remake, the objects are actively trying to stop her from leaving, and it's like, you've made all these characters kind of like dicks at the same time. Yeah, they're, they're kind of <laughs> complicit now in the kidnapping. They've turned them into like really creepy objects yeah. when they were really endearing in the original. So so I'm just laughing,
2: because I'm just thinking, well, imagine if he had like a dildo in his mansion. <laughs> Or something <laughs> and, and, and it was one of those just wobbling a, around Porcel- oh. right, yeah,
1: Like a proper wobbly one as well <laughs> I was thinking like yeah. a porcelain dildo With like Emma Thompson's voice <laughs> 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 No Judy Dent or something Hello oh. Master Beast <laughs> Have you come to oh. slip me inside you? It's Because it's going to be northern as well <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be burning man <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right master beast are you going to slip me inside you again eh?
3: <laughs> oh. I can't wait
2: to be human again
3: <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the other thing as well like we were talking about before with the additions to fix things or right certain wrongs I know like the big one in Aladdin is that Jasmine is not empowered enough and also she's the only female speaking part so in the remake they add her like handmaiden That's supposed to be progressive. But in actual fact, all she's there for is to give Will Smith's genie a case of the not gays. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like, that's all (laughs) she's there
3: for just because we were questioning Robin Williams' genie's sexuality at the end of the original <laughs> film. And also, I was thinking, like, with the genie in the remake, his deal's nowhere near as good as Robin Williams, because when Robin Williams is free, he still has all these cool powers, whereas uh, when Will Smith is made an on-genie, yeah. he just becomes a human.
1: Yeah, <laughs> You've become Will Smith. I know, yeah. Like, in the original, he puts on a goofy hat and fucking flies yeah. off into the cosmos. And in this one, it's like, he gets to ride a peasant boat for the remainder of his street rat life.
2: (laughs) Oh, I just remembered that. Yeah, it starts with him telling the story, right? Yeah. Sorry, I've just... Oh, God, I completely forgot about... Well, he gets a shit deal.
3: (laughs) Wow. No, all the cosmic wonder, gone. Itty bitty living space on the water. Yeah. (laughs) This week I've been watching a lot of interviews with the uh, some of the original directors and animators behind the films. And I was watching um, an interview with Ron Clements, who's one of the directors of Aladdin. And he was basically saying that with the original framing device of uh, having Robin Williams play the street salesman yeah, yeah. at the beginning, originally that was supposed to be turn out to be the genie. Yeah, it's, I've saw the script pages. You can see it's scripted yeah. as much. And they decided to leave that out and leave it more ambiguous because they didn't think it mattered. And the only reason they wanted Robin Williams there is because because he didn't appear until about 35, 40 minutes into the rest of the film. They wanted to sort of have a bit of Robin Williams at the start and help set up the story. And that's one of the reasons also why Gilbert Gottfried is in the movie as a Yago because Robin Williams is absent for a good portion of the start of the movie. They wanted somebody else to sort of fill that void. And bring that energy to the film. Yeah. yeah. And this is another thing that the live-action remix did horribly. What the fuck is going on with Iago in the film? Like, he's gone. He was missing for me. Why did they even cast Alan Tudyk? They could have cast anybody. I could have done it. (laughs) I still say it now. Like, we've just got new kittens.
2: And um, when one of them is meowing too much, I still still, uh, just look at them and just go,
3: Calm yourself, Iago. All the time. I say it to my daughter.
2: (laughs) Calm yourself,
0: Iago.
3: But I think that's where these films are going to have an incredibly short lifespan because there's nothing to take home from any of these films. If you think about all the Renaissance animated films, they've got so many iconic characters and moments and bits of dialogue and everything that you can take with you and you can use them in everyday life like we've just done now. There's nothing in these new films that you can do that with. For me, it's the soul. It's like
2: That's kind of what it's lacking. Mm -hmm. You can have a pretty shell, but... There's not the um, emotional connection within. And it can look good, and there can be elements that's good, but whether it connects with you and makes you feel things in the same way, it's just not there. And And I don't think it's purely down to it being a nostalgic barrier hindering it. I think it's down to the fact that they're just hollow. Yeah, yeah.
1: I agree as well. I said it earlier on in the episode, but I feel like the technical exercises that are just missing an emotional core And one of the things I actually thought of was Disney's always been the company that's regarded as making Happy Meal cinema. And even back in the 90s, when you look at the Disney Renaissance that we all refer to, it's like it's still Happy Meal cinema. It's still very, like, optimistic, blockbuster-driven, good-feeling type of easily digestible films. But there's been a lot of talent and a lot of work and a lot of sweat and blood put into making those films as well that I feel like these films now, it's like getting a Happy Meal but somebody's already chewed the
2: burger, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like getting a Happy Meal, but someone's taking the toy.
1: Oh my god! Oh, my heart. <laughs> my... I felt and shat in your burger, <laughs> <laughs> and also Ronald McDonald jizzed on your fries.
3: <laughs> it's a special sauce. <laughs> oh, oh.
1: <laughs> salty and sweet. <laughs> I don't want a Happy Meal anymore. I was going to get a McDonald's um so so as we're talking as well I, I want to move the conversation beyond the lion king and aladdin and you know the films that we've seen that have been related to the disney renaissance to be honest i'm not going too far i'm actually uh going to be looking to the future so the next films up really in this trend this ongoing trend as i mentioned we have the mulan remake that was supposed to have already been out by now and not know what hercules is going to be announced sooner did you mention there's, there's
2: another one i couldn't remember hercules definitely if they don't think musical that it, it's just not going to work if they're not feeling that sort of motowny kind of jazzy kind of feel to it it's just yeah. gonna
3: flop absolutely flop i think that one's actually i mean it's a really hard one to do because that has a, such a distinctive visual style mm. that's imprinted on that movie because of the Gerald Scarf production yeah. design. I mean, they've got nowhere to go with that. This is where I kind of feel like, talking about like the technical aspects of it, and I actually have to say, I think all these films, these remakes, are actually technically inferior to the animated films because the medium they've chose to tell these stories is not the right medium. Oh, I
1: mean, I agree with that, but I think that, for example, when we look at the integrity of the CGI, it's like watching a Transformers film. It's like when I see... Transformers, and I look at the quality of the CGI on display. I'm like, you know what? Fantastic job, ILM. You really polished the fuck out of this turd. And that's what I feel like with these films. It's like you look at the integrity of the CGI in The Lion King, it's fantastic. But there's no way, shape, or form that that film should ever be this medium that should ever be done in that mm. way because it's so no. flat, dull,
2: and lifeless. I watched a couple of scenes um in preparation for this podcast of The Lion King again. And um, I was just checking out for seeing if they had like a cat-style butthole like, <laughs> <laughs> a- animation in there. And, I did hide it the well. balls as well. They hide it well. There's a lot of shots where it's like, you know, if you move it a little bit more, you're going to see butt. Yeah. But they don't, or the tail's down or whatever. Not that I'm, not that I'm actively looking for lion's assholes or anything. <laughs> but, well, I was actually, yeah, I was. Um, I know you've just got cats. I might call the RSPCA <laughs> immediately
1: following this podcast. <laughs> I have a friend... Can I leave an anonymous tip by any chance? (laughs) But yeah, I I also... I wanted to speak about Mulan because did anybody see the trailers to that film as well? Like In terms of the way that they're moving with that? Because I know that when that first trailer came out, a lot of people were... They balked at the idea of it not including Mushu and it actually... Mulan's not my favourite film of that era anyway, but I'm not that bothered about what they're doing with that film. It looks more like... They're trying to make it in the same vein as like Hero or Crouching Tiger or that type of thing rather than trying to just repeat the original. And I actually think that's probably the best way to go about it. But I actually think that they should have gone the full step further rather than it being like in between ideas that just make it its own original story that doesn't have to have... This Like, it's got that musical motif as well that makes you think that it's going to include that... uh, I forgot what it's called, that big musical number. Uh, It's Christina Aguilera, wasn't it, in the year? Reflection. Reflection, yeah. Was it Christina Aguilera that did the... uh... Yeah, she did the one at the end, yeah.
2: Oh, as if you're asking, as if you don't know.
1: (laughs) But, um, yes, Milan itself is based on pre-existing material anyway, so why not go back to the source and see if there's a new story to tell in that? And I think that the trailer, it does show that it's got an element of that, But it's also kind of tying
2: itself back to the original at the same time. It seems to me like they're um, potentially they've actively looked at what things might not translate well to live action. A talking dragon. Hmm, Yeah, that (laughs) won't. And therefore perhaps removed it. And maybe that song is used just as a melodic callback to the original. And that's about it, perhaps. But it looks, it suddenly looks like it's um, headed in a better direction for the live action remakes. Yeah. I look at these films like
1: Alice in Wonderland and Dumbo and Maleficent and then even like Aladdin and the Lion King and even the Lion King, despite it's kind of like planet Earth realism because you've got these actual talking animals in it as well. It's really jarring, that kind of difference in tones. But even looking at the rest of them, like the actual truly live-action ones, is that they all feel so fake and all look so fake. And when I saw the Milan trailer, I was like, oh, wow, at least it seems to be... A lot of physical effects. I know there's a lot of nafs surrounding like sorcery and that type of thing, which, you know, why not? But it does actually seem to be largely practical. Big sets in real locations. And it's like, yeah, okay. I, I quite like the idea of doing it that way, rather than this kind of sound stagey look of Aladdin that's feels like it's actually hindered that film rather than actually benefited it in any way because Aladdin reminds me of like a Revenge of the Sith in many ways where it's like you've got to deliver all of this dialogue on this one metre long bit of blue screen. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And yeah, was like Milan actually feels like in many ways like one of these... uh, I was thinking like that John Woo film, Red Cliff. Like it feels like that, like one of those really big kind of Chinese epics, you know? It's not a film I'm particularly looking forward to. It's not a film I'm particularly pumped to see. But I felt when I saw the trailer that I was like, oh, maybe it is a step in the right direction to do these films. To actually just go back to the source material and do a completely different take on it. But yeah, I do worry that the success of more like Aladdin and The Lion King and stuff like that is going to result in this basic retelling that's I'm not interested in whatsoever. I would say to you as well, just to put the question out there, are there any Disney films, even from the Renaissance period, are there any Disney films that you think could benefit from being retold? Because initially I thought not, but I know that me and you, Andy, we had a conversation the other day and one of and it suddenly popped into my head something that I thought, I think you could retell it and improve on the original. But I don't know if live action's the way particularly, but I think Treasure Planet would be my mm. one in that. Treasure Planet's a very much an almost movie. I like it but it's almost something else. It's, it's clearly a labour of love, but it never quite achieves the greatness that, you know, given the people involved and the talent involved that you would expect of those people. And I think it's got some great ideas. It's based on very solid source material that I, I love anyway because I read Treasure Island when I was a kid. Yeah,
3: yeah, And
1: I think there's a lot that you can do with that aspect of taking that story and telling it against the you know, the framing of space and a magical version of space at that in which ships sail off through the cosmos. And I'm like, I think you can do that and do it better than what they did then. But whether or not they'll do it with the same colour and the same energy and the same vibrancy, I don't know if the way that they're making live-action films
3: now they ever would. The medium of animation is so freeing when it comes to, like, world-building. Yeah. that If they did a shot-for-shot remake of Treasure Planet, it would be too expensive. Yeah, you couldn't do it. But in that medium, it works because they're freed up by mm-hmm. being able to move the camera in certain ways and use certain characters and have them interact in certain ways. I mean, that film on its own is a marvel in itself. I mean, if you look at the character of John Silver, where they—he's a hybrid character where, yeah, like the organic parts are hand-drawn and the uh, the cyborg parts are all computer animated, and they've so wonderfully really been. together. As well. yeah. like
1: it's character in even the technical aspects
3: of how they made the film, his character yeah. shines through there. That's great. Because the only other one I could think of that would maybe benefit, because I think it's maybe suited for a live-action thing, because it's kind of inspired by live-action movies anyway, is uh, is Atlantis, The Lost Empire, because it is very heavily Jules Verne, oh, sorry, Indiana say. Jones influence. But I don't know whether it would just come off looking like a rehash of those kind of things anyway because of the thing that makes Atlantis very special on a visual sense is the production design because all the character designs are by um, Mike Mignola of Hellboy fame so it has a very distinctive visual look that is a huge part of what makes the film appealing it's all the sums of the parts you can't just like it's like with the Hercules thing I don't know how that's going to work because you can have the story, you can have the songs, but without that visual look, it's not going to be the same thing. Yeah. So, in a way, I would have to say no, there's no film that would oh. benefit from a live action remake because these films have been purposely designed to work within this medium. Yeah. And if you're doing something, then just don't have any callbacks. And that's the issue. Yeah. They would never do that because all these films are for it's a very sophisticated next generation version of the old theatrical re-release that's all it is it's just them thinking right so instead of just re-releasing our film in the cinema like they used to do because obviously before home video disney used to do this all the time when they used to re-release films because it's the only way they could get them back into circulation and have the prestige like there was for the longest time a lot of these films were in the vault and you'd only see them at certain times in a decade yeah even when they're released on home video they're only ever released for a limited time and this has all kind of gone out the window recently, but all these remakes are are a next generation version of re-releasing your film or releasing your film in 3D. Like they had a, a very short fad of doing that, you know, like Titanic in 3D or, you know, yeah. um, Nightmare Before Christmas in 3D. It's exactly the same thing and all it is. It's them just re-releasing a property, but with a new lick of paint. Yeah. And also that progressive label that they sort of attach to these things. And that's all they are. In many ways, it is exactly what you've just said. It's just the Disney
1: vault taken to the next level, really. Yeah, it is. Especially since Michael Eisner was brought on board and what you kind of instilled into the company from that point is just he excelled in creating anticipation for existing properties by, as you mentioned, just releasing them in these very strict windows and then when the home video market actually took off, it kind of killed that whole method of releasing these films for him because once you had them, they were available. You could watch them whenever you wanted, yeah. whereas now it's like, well, if we keep on remaking them, and as I say, I think it's going to become circular, but they're going to eventually run out of properties and it's going to resort in them actually remaking the likes of Alice in Wonderland and that type of thing, going straight back. You know, I can see in the future, in another 10 years' time, we'll definitely have, like, Red Queen the movie, you know, being released.
3: Yeah, I think actually a better comparison because I, I genuinely you don't like my fucking
1: comparison.
3: I think a better comparison because you almost mentioned it before was I think these films are actually damaging Disney's brand yeah. in the long term. I would compare them more in terms of the the damage that they're doing to the Disney brand. I would say they have more in common with those direct to video sequels that they used to make in the <laughs> yeah. in the nineties and early two thousands. You know, like, like Aladdin two and three, and The Lion King two, and One Hundred and One Dalmatians two, Patch's Adventure, and shit like that. I think um, Simba's Pride. I think it is The
2: Lion King two. I think it's great. He lives and you is a brilliant song as well, which is actually in the um, in the stage show.
3: Yeah, it's one of the better ones. But some of them are absolute dog shit. Like if you ever watched Hunchback of Notre Dame two, it's like just fucking awful I saw the return of Jafar
1: and that was really bad Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and Lion King 4 Nala's
3: Revenge <laughs> those direct to video sequels were lambasted towards the end like they were doing serious harm to Disney's image like especially in the traditional animation forum and uh, I think that these will eventually do the same thing That I don't think history will be kind to them yeah. at all oh, history will forget them I was looking at some of these numbers before because it seemed to me that the only films that did really, really well were the ones that were based off Renaissance films. And any of the ones that are, I'd say, outside of the Jungle Book because that's like a special case, but all the other ones that they've done have actually not been that successful. And also because they're planning to do sequels to some of these films. I know there's an Aladdin sequel in development. Yes, there is, yeah. I don't see how that's going to be successful because people only went to see Aladdin based on their nostalgia for the original film. And it's been proved correct because when they did that Alice sequel, even though Alice in Wonderland made over a billion dollars... The sequel absolutely tanked.
1: Yeah, and it's it's supposedly... I mean, I've not seen it, and I have no reason to see it, and it's supposedly supposed to be the better film of the two. And yet, nobody went to go to see it whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. And Maleficent 2 as well has done the same.
2: Yeah. Our age group would make up quite a large demographic of people who are watching them based on the originals. And, you know, the classic... Or or the... the, um, Oh, what's the word you keep using? The Renaissance are the ones that we talk about and we love the most and the, and the biggest ones in our hearts, right? So makes sense. Yeah, yeah.
1: And we're the people that are taking our kids to them as well. I mean, I obviously speak about this as somebody with two kids, but like people of our generation are now taking their kids to go see if they can recapture that same feeling we had. And that's also why I feel really bad about this. I mentioned it in my opening that where we are at in terms of the state of cinema and even just Disney as a whole, talking about the company as a whole and that we've got to a point in which the meals that we are repackaging for our audiences or for a new audience are these, like I say, it's just something from our past. Whereas we, we grew up with the Disney Renaissance and we grew up with this idea that we were having these new stories put to screen and new ideas and Disney were making new original films and now it's all about repackaging what we had, but for our kids. Yeah, And for me, I feel bad for my daughter about what she's getting because she's not having the same type of treatment that we had. She's just simply being told to eat the same shit that we ate and is not being given anything new of her own that she can grow up and say, you know, these films came out when I was a kid. These are the films I grew up with. It's just yeah. repackaged versions of what we already had, and it makes me feel bad that about what my daughter's seeing in cinema. In many ways,
2: aren't a lot of Disney's films based on fairy tales and and folklore and, and existing properties anyway, right?
3: Yeah, but they're originally told; they're not direct lifts. Like, yeah, of course, yeah, of course. Yeah, like Beauty and the Beast is one of the biggies. Like. The interpretation of Beat and the Beast that they came up with is basically a completely new property because, in fact, that's one of those things where they took something that was actually quite weak. They describe it, the original story is just a series of dinners. (laughs) It's basically just... Him inviting her to dinner and her not showing up. Yeah. And one day she shows up. And that's all the fucking story is. It's Story pretty, of my life. <laughs> it's a very simple story. And it's them having to extrapolate that and make something work that actually works as a full, fully functioning story. When I was growing up, I was massively into Disney. You know, one of my ambitions at the time was to be an animator. Mm-hmm. I looked forward every year to a new Disney film coming out because I knew it would be something completely different. And this was in the time when sequels were not even a thing. Yeah, I would just be looking forward to the next thing. i will be like, oh yeah, they're going to do Hercules next year. That's cool. I'd like to see what they do with that. That's the relationship I had growing up, that anticipation of, oh, what story are they going to do next? Whereas now it's like oh, what film are they going to regurgitate? Yeah. If this was just completely new interpretations with no ties, the same like with that Mulan one, like why can't they just adapt the fucking poem? They're halfway there anyway with that one. That's what I was saying with it, yeah. They could easily cut any ties with the Disney film, with the 98 film. It's it's all intents and purposes, a original film with a couple of callbacks, and those callbacks are so tentative that they may as well not be there. Like, I'd be happier with them doing that than regurgitating like the lion king for example like the circle of life it's like gus van sant's yeah psycho remake it's a shot for shot remake and all it is it's just live action analogs for all the shots it's already been yeah. staged and that's the thing i really object to despite the fact that they're making like much worse versions of any of these stories the fact that some of it is wholesale ripped from the originals and it's it's just um incredibly depressing
1: yeah me i really like because I, I mean i feel where you're coming from it is incredibly depressing like i mean i know that one of the things it probably get criticized for is and i did mention it in my opening is that you know who better to discuss this topic than three 30 year olds but at the same time it's like when you even approach it as mentioned from the perspective of what are the kid audience getting these days what are disney giving to our kids as well and it's not good really it's like yeah and i would say as well it's not just the disney live action movies but it's in the way that they're dealing with uh, like lucasfilm as well and that type of thing it's all about nostalgia it's all about reserving the same experiences over again and i feel like that's something that audiences will get tired of rather quickly and i think the more that they release these live action films like It seems to have culminated, like hit a peak with 2019 with four of them being released the same year, five if you include Lady and the Tramp. And I feel like, to be honest, that could be the breaking point for this. I know that all of those films made money, but I can't foresee them continuing to do so. I
3: think the bottom's going to fall out of that sooner rather than later.
2: Yeah, I agree.
3: Because the thing is, like you were talking about with your daughter watching The Lion King... The live-action one and not getting anything out of it. That circle of life opening is a, a prescient point because, because I would decided to watch those three: the *Beating the Beast*, *Aladdin*, and *Lion King*. I purposely watched the originals beforehand and then watched the remakes. And when we were watching *Lion King*, and I hadn't seen *Lion King* for quite some time—probably about five years since I've actually seen it
0: properly—and
3: mm-hmm. watching the *Circle of Life* the opening gave me goosebumps. There's that old cliche of, like, lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And when we watched the live action, which is identical, pretty much identical shot for shot, that opening, and we weren't getting the goosebumps, and it's like, what's wrong with this? It's not giving me any feeling whatsoever, but it's exactly the fucking same. And there's something wrong here. Rescuers Down Under does that for me. (laughs) That opening... That's fucking seemed, amazing. Oh my, that is amazing. But there's that something that these live action remakes are just not getting at all. Yeah, you can't recreate that kind of magic. Even my cats didn't watch <laughs> even a bit. Like,
2: like Simba was on was on screen and like they did not give a shit. There's not enough visible cat butthole. No, nope. that's it. <laughs> that's <not laughs> that was the mate. reason. <laughs> that's what cats want from that experience. Yeah. There was a bit, actually, it was funny. I thought, I was wondering how they were going to do it in terms of um, get these live-action animals to emote. (laughs) And any close-up doesn't work because they can't. Because, you know, a tiger can't smile. Even if it's just killed a gazette, and it stood over it. It's nothing is going on. There's just nothing going on there, dead on the inside, right. right? But they can manipulate it a bit with the bodies. Like when it jumps around and it's excited like a cat or oh, a yeah. dog or something would. They can sort of do it that way, but wow, no. Just, I mean, when Pumba's sad, that does not translate to me. No. <laughs> I remember when the trailer
1: for War Horse came out... <laughs>
2: And uh, you you
1: had the same criticism Then when we saw the trailer You're like I just don't get it It's a horse It can't emote (laughs) And there's a scene at the end When it looks into the camera And you're supposed to get The horrors of war But you're like It's just a fucking horse
2: Staring at the camera blankly No You know what yeah, exactly. All I saw was the animated out reflection of the camera into the horse's blacks all the time. <laughs> like a doll's like, eye. The horse doesn't go, you, you don't know the things I've seen. <laughs> because it's fucking. Because it's a horse. Oh, God. Fucking hooves and horses and bullshit. Sorry, we've
1: got
3: to stop horsing around. <laughs> <laughs> they can only remake these so many times, like in this time period anyway. And I was thinking, there's a big film that we've not mentioned at all in this, is which is. Um, Tim Burton's Dumbo, which actually managed to flop. Yes. Flop like oversized ears. (laughs) Hey, it's a a real pun then, and I don't think you realised it. It managed to flop. Uh, But apparently that film needed to have made 500 million to break even, and it only made 353.
1: I did mention earlier on that I watched some of it. It's like misery porn. Honestly, there's nothing enjoyable about it. It's like
3: <laughs> it sounded depressing.
1: Everybody, well, that's it. Everybody is just depressed. It's not enjoyable. It's not happy, and it's really hypocritical as well because it's got this kind of like streak of anti-Disney sentiment all the way through it as well. About at one point I turned it off when we got to this point but they go to like this Wonderland circus that is very much an analog for Disney World itself. But the whole film is just like misery inducing. And nobody's enjoying themselves. And then when Dumbo's born as well, there's no sense of wonder or awe or anything like that. Everybody's just like, oh, look how ugly this elephant is. And because it... I I know that's in the original as well, but because it's so... It's not real because it looks fake as fuck. But yeah, it just is miserable throughout. How do they handle
3: the crows? They're not included. There's no mouse either.
1: Oh, wow. There's a reference to all of those things. There's a reference to a crow's feather at one point where Dumbo, he sneezes on a crow's feather, which makes him fly, and that's how he figure out he can fly. And then there's also the daughter trains... She wants to be a scientist and she runs experiments and she trains mice and one of them wears the same costume and that's it. It's like, I'm not saying that it needs to include all these things <laughs> to do it. Like, in my opinion, if you're going to do this story, do it completely differently. But... There's no way that you should make it that dull and lifeless and lacking of energy or, or any of the fun and wonder. Mm. Okay, so I think we've gone over the main points, but are we optimistic about the future of Disney? What would you say? I'll go to you, Aidan, first. What do you feel about the future of Disney? Is there any films you're looking forward to or do you feel enthused by it or are you kind of depressed like the rest of us?
2: You know, I feel like Neo in The Matrix, where Morpheus shows him on that TV what the outside world really looks like and it's clouded over and the robots reign supreme and human beings are grown now not as specific as that but certainly in <laughs> that there is no hope <laughs> oh, nice <laughs> it's a shame really i mean they've not shown that they can do anything in a different way or do it or that there's any point to redoing it i think that's the core thing i'm taking away from this conversation um, and what i certainly take away from watching the films um and it's a shame, because I wish they could sort of pull a hat. Pull a hat. I wish they could pull a rabbit out of a hat. <laughs> a hat out of a but rabbit. But I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, RSVPA, hello! I, I would pay I <laughs> would straight again.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but I mean, <clears throat> they've not shown that they're able to handle these remakes in a way that makes them worthwhile. So, no, um. <laughs> no. I'm trying to think of something positive, but it's just not coming. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I'm not looking forward to the future ones because I'm a man of uh, science, not a man of faith. And what they've done yeah. so far hasn't worked. Uh, therefore, I don't think it's going to work.
1: And Andy, how do you feel? I mean, considering how positive that you've been throughout the episode, I imagine you cannot wait <laughs> to see <laughs> the next that Disney has to offer
3: as i said maybe at the start of the show i think the only departments in disney at the moment that are taking any kind of creative risks are the animation departments because they are the only ones are in i mean you know bar a few sequels every single film that they are releasing at the moment pixar and Walt Disney animation studios combined they're all new stories yeah you know if you just look at the concept of the soul movie that's coming out that's Mm -hmm. bonkers yeah it is absolutely in any medium that's a A really strange idea, and I I love it. I read about that separate from
1: the trailer. When I saw the trailer, it made me think one thing. But then I actually started reading up about the film and what it's truly about, and in terms of the different ideas of afterlife and pre-life as well. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's it's really original. It's a crazy idea. I can't wait to see what they do with it.
3: And it makes me happy as well. The fact that that's a Pete Doctor film, so Pete Doctor's, you know, Monsters Incorporated, Up, Inside Out. And the fact that he's now in charge of Pixar as well. Yeah. Like he's the big dude now. Now John Lasseter's fucked off or been let go. Yeah, quietly. I think he's been quite, quietly <laughs> let go. Yeah. He's been peeled off. And <laughs> please stop hugging me, sir. But the fact that he's now in charge is really exciting because he's always been one of the best directors that Pixar has to offer. I just think the whole direction that that area of Disney's going in is quite positive, but everything else. It's just fucking creatively bankrupt. I mean, it's just a mess, and it's doing well for them now. That's it,
1: yeah. With Dumbo being the last of that lot, that's what I mean. I feel like the bottom may be starting to fall out of this idea, and I hope it truly is, because this sense of cannibalization that they're going down, this road of just simply regurgitating the same ideas and going through those motions, it's As you mentioned, it's only short-term. It's only going to yield for the short-term. And it's long-term. It could actually impact the long-lasting legacies of the original films. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think that this could really go wrong for Disney because it's already kind of sullying what Disney represent as a company anyway. So I feel like, and I hope that we are coming towards the end of this trend, like the end is in sight. But God, who knows? Who knows if it truly is? Because you're only one single $1 billion film away from... A bunch of execs green lighting about four different versions of that exact same film. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's where we're at as an industry as well. Disney's bank manager
3: knows where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> but it also seems to me as well with the advent of Disney Plus, if you look at the films in development, a lot of the films that are based on I wouldn't say lesser name, but the like for example there's a Robin Hood Remake and yeah, development. That's it for Disney Plus. But that is that is for Disney Plus. I feel like some of these films are going to be a bit sheltered by being on Disney Plus. Yeah, but it does mean that after a certain amount of time the amount of properties that they're going to be able to remake is going to start to dry up. Certainly. So that's the only positive I can garner out of this (laughs) because these are specifically live-action remakes and the fact that the ones that have done really well are only the ones that have been based on the Renaissance films, of which there are not that many Renaissance films and actually they've done some of the most successful ones already. There's a Hunchback one in development, but, I mean, even though I love... Hunchback the film it was never that successful at the cinema same goes for Hercules Hercules was quite a big bomb at the time I mean are we going to get another Tarzan
1: as well? you bet yeah (laughs) that'll be swinging into cinemas in 2023 (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> but yeah, it will be interesting to see how long the lifespan of this is going to be, like, and whether, say, the Aladdin sequel, whether that's going to soar or, or just be like Alice through the Looking Glass.
1: Yeah. You know what? I think you're absolutely right, actually. Come to think about it, I think that's where the trend is going to be made or broken, is yeah, because there is a finite amount of these remakes that they can make. It's all going to be in how the spin-offs of these ideas perform and we've already seen in the past looking at Through the Looking Glass and Maleficent 2 that not well so far Mm. hopefully I mean and I say this truly hopefully that trend continues if they continue down this trend of making these creatively bankrupt films I'm not saying I'm not strictly opposed to the idea of the being live action remakes I'm just opposed to the idea of them being so creatively bankrupt that's Mm. what i was uh, trying to get across but yeah so i think We've uh, summed up there, really, our thoughts on the episode. I will say thank you very much, Aiden, for joining us on this episode. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast once more, and hopefully we won't leave it four years
2: to have you back on <laughs> again. My pleasure, guys. A brilliant topic that we're all really stoked and happy about to be talking about. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and so that's been Popcorn Digest for this week's episode. Next week, if you join us again, we'll be reviewing, I do believe it is Tremors. Is that correct, Andy? I think so. Yeah, I
3: looked at the list. I, I will just check. I think. Thank it you. Is. Oh, just as an aside, I came up with alternative titles for the films that I saw. So, 2019 Aladdin is called Will Smith and the Magic Jams. <laughs> 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 That's great. 2017 uh, Beat and the Beast is called Beat and the Prick. Uh, the, the beast is an absolute asshole in that film. He has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And uh, 2019 Lion King is called. I just can't wait to emote. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's Tremors. Yeah.
1: Okay. So join us next week when Andy and I will be returning to review everybody's favorite graboid-related movie Tremors. But until then, it's bye from myself. Bye from Andy. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and also to ra from Aiden Goodbye Thanks for listening Clear the way in the old bazaar Hey you, let us through, it's a brand new star. Oh
0: come, be the first on your block To meet his eye. Make way, here he comes Ring bells, make the drums You're gonna love this guy Prince Ali, fabulous Some
3: respect, boy, you fled down on one knee? Now t- try your best to stay calm. Brush up your Sunday salon. Then come and meet his spectacular courtier, Prince Ali
2: Madizia
0: Lebaba, strong as ten regular men, definitely.
2: He faced the galloping hordes. A hundred bad guys were sworn. Who sent those goons to their lords by Prince Ali? Little town, it's a quiet village Every day like the one before Little town,
0: full of little people Waking up to say So prepare for the coup of the century for the murkiest scam. meticulous planning, tenacity
1: smiling. Decades of denial is simply why I'll be king, undisputed, respected, saluted, and seen.